You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Give the gospel. So we're very, very excited uh, about what the Lord has done. We're super grateful. We're terribly humbled. And even this morning, when we dive into God's Word and we look at a passage, it's going to be, I think, even more of an emphasis and a reinforcement. Because sometimes when we talk about church finances, our immediate tendency is to focus on the stuff that we do not have. And to wonder, well, what can we do since we don't have this, that, or the other? This text is going to address that. Or sometimes we have a default tendency to focus on the resources that we do have. And then we recognize that that's actually not enough either. This text is going to address that. What we're going to get to see is that God has greater things for us than we can possibly imagine if we will simply yield and trust Him. So I'm going to pray for our campus, for our church, and then we're going to dive right into our passage together this morning. So let me ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you that even as I speak words aloud with my voice, that by grace, you, the sovereign king of the cosmos, you hear them and you care and they register and they mean something. So we thank you that you have drawn near in Christ. You have indwelled us by your spirit and we now have communication and communion with you. And so Father, we ask that you would continue to give us wisdom and courage, discernment, to follow you, to heed you, and that you would go before us. We'll be careful, Father, to give you all the glory. So we lay the rest of this fiscal year before you, like Nehemiah rolling out the plans before the king. And we ask that you would bless. And where there is error, would you correct? Where there is uh, fear, would you amplify your presence? God, we ask that you would continue to move forward and that you would give us uh, the joy of following after your leading. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, the fourth book in our New Testament. While you're turning to the Gospel of John, you can go to chapter 6. I want to tell you a little story. A number of years ago, this is a few churches ago, as a matter of fact, I was a part of a team that was looking for a new pastor to come. Um, I was not going to be that pastor. Uh, I was not being considered at that time. We were looking for a new pastor to come and be the lead pastor. And uh, the church assembled several of us from different uh, ages and backgrounds and uh, ministry influences to try to discern what was important for the church. What did the church need now in this new season of our existence? And it was actually... It's kind of weird because it really sort of tended to focus a bit much on people's individual preferences and their backgrounds. I mean, whether it was good or bad, there was all sorts of answers. They said that this, this pastor, he needed to be super smart. He needed to have multiple degrees. He needed to be an excellent preacher. He needed to be a selfless shepherd. He had to be a brilliant leader, a winsome communicator, an administrator. He had to have a flawless family and a reputation in the community. Pretty soon, it became obvious and apparent that this person simply did not exist. Or if this person actually did exist, then our church certainly didn't deserve him or couldn't afford him. Because this guy was lights out, awesome across the board. 
But I'll never forget one older guy in the group who didn't say a whole lot till the very end. He just sort of sat there and candidly, I, I still kind of feel like he might have been asleep for a good 80% of the conversation. He sat there with his arms crossed and then he just sort of mumbled almost under his breath. He said, devotion. And I looked at him like, well, welcome to the party. Where have you been? I've already like filled out all of my buzzword bingo squares. I've used every cool pastor word I know. And you're just going to mutter devotion? What does that mean? And he said, if this guy just deeply, daily loves Jesus, then we'll be all right. And candidly, I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a Jesus juke. Like, oh yeah, okay, a little bit glib. But I've never gotten over it. The more I have thought about that, the more I have sort of wrestled with that, I think, now he's absolutely right. It is about daily, literal, authentic, sincere devotion. Clearly, yes, there's a need and there is a value in necessary training and experience. But a person who devotionally and authentically loves Jesus is a person that Jesus can and will use. So how does devotion practically happen in a person's life? How does a person move from simply knowing an awful lot about Jesus to really loving the person of Jesus to the extent that they are actually practically devoted to him? And I'll just tell you, I think it comes from a sincere study of how Jesus is portrayed in Scripture. And then allowing ourselves, yielding ourselves by faith to really be devoted to the person that the Bible is describing. What we discover is that our lives truly take a turn and change profoundly when we stop just knowing an awful lot about Him and when we begin to pursue Him as a person because of His worth his majesty, his awesomeness, his glory, his goodness, and his grace. And so when we come to a text like that, it really does help us devotionally believe that Jesus is more than enough. And that also just so happens to be our big idea for this morning's passage. Jesus is more than enough. Or, or let me emphasize it slightly differently. Jesus is more than enough. Or Jesus is more than enough. We're in the Gospel of John. I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 6 if you're not already there. I want to remind you that John's entire thrust is that his readers will believe that this Jesus is not merely a swell rabbi, a good teacher, a nice guy, a pathetic martyr, that he literally is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the very essence, the same ingredient as God himself. As Matthew writes to Jews, as Mark writes to Romans, as Luke writes to Greeks, Luke writes to, I'm sorry, John writes to the church that we will believe with all of our weight, with all of our effort, with all of our focus, we will stand on that truth more than any other that Jesus is God. So I'm going to read chapter 6. I'm going to read the entire passage so that you can hear uh, the mastery of this narrative. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. And then we'll see if we can unpack this a little bit and apply it. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Now, how does a passage like this help us to believe that Jesus is more than enough? How does ingesting a text like this help us to be the kind of person that would be described as devotional, daily dedicated and dependent upon the person of Jesus? Well, let's see if we can unpack this passage a good little bit. As you may or may not know, the feeding of the multitudes, as it's sometimes referred, is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Other than, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. And yet, John's telling lacks substantially in some detail. He leaves out a bunch of what I would think are some pretty important details. And so the tendency when you get to this point of the passage in the gospel of John is to go, well, let's get a little help from Mark. Because Mark uses a whole lot more descriptive terms. But... John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes this passage the way that he does to build into our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we're essentially going to stay here in the Gospel of John. So here's what I'd like to do. Verses 1 to 4. If you're the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible, then I encourage you to do so. If you're not the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible, then I encourage you to do so. It's okay, and if you have an electronic kind, figure it out. It's helpful, I think, for a passage like this to maybe even have an outline built in the margins of your Bible. If you want to write something down, these are all going to be alliterative. They're going to start with an S. The outline for this passage today, the first four verses, verses 1 through 4, are the setting. Verses 1 through 4 are the setting. Now, in chapter 5, we find Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. After 38 years of being an invalid, Jesus has healed him. And then Jesus launches into his great grand Christology, his own self-declaration of divinity. That all happens in Jerusalem. And then after this, 
We're not told exactly how much time, uh, but after this, we find Jesus way up in the north again in chapter 6. It's quite likely that at least six months have gone by. In that six-month period, John the Baptist has already been beheaded by Herod Antipas. So things are already starting to increase in tension. The, 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 the mounting conflict between Jesus and the ruling of the authorities of the day is already beginning to build. So let me begin reading again. Chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when John says this, he doesn't bother to tell us what happens in those six months in between chapter 5 and chapter 6, just that uh, we'll find out later because it's the Passover that about six months have gone by. It's the spring. It's uh, March, April time frame. And John says that he went to the other side. In the New Testament, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually not a sea. It's a freshwater lake. The other side always refers to the east side, to the eastern shore, because the Jewish communities were all situated on the north and the western shore. That's where the Jews lived, the good people. The other side is where the Gentiles lived, the other people. The, the cities of the Decapolis were over there. The Romans had a garrison over there. And so John wants us to understand that Jesus has left Jerusalem, and now we see him going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Why does John say that? In Jesus' day, they almost certainly would not have referred to the, the lake as the Sea of Tiberias. That's a Roman name. But by the time John writes this, mid-80s A.D., Rome has already destroyed Jerusalem. The temple's been wiped out. The conquest is complete. And so in John's day, the lake would have been known as the Sea of Tiberias, not during Jesus' day. But what's interesting is there is a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, the, the Lake of Galilee. There is a city there called Tiberias that was built in honor of Caesar Tiberius. What's fascinating is that Jesus will go around the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee and because of the rejection by the Jews in Chorazin and Capernaum and all these different places, Jesus will curse each one of those Jewish villages. He said, it would be better for you if you were Sodom and Gomorrah and he'll curse each and every one of them. The one settlement on the Sea of Galilee that he does not curse is Tiberias on the western shore. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, it's really fascinating. All of those other cities are abandoned ruins. The only city that is to this day a functioning, thriving city with a lot of traffic and smog is Tiberias, the Gentile city. Quite interesting. So John's wanting us to understand already that Jesus, Jesus does not hate the Romans. In fact, scandalously slow, Jesus loves Romans, which is not going to be what they expect at all. So chapter 6 again in verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Well, a large crowd is following. He is picking up momentum in his popularity. This is going to be sort of the high watermark of his uh, esteem and how people really like him and want to be around him. He's drawing a lot of attention because he is remedying the problems of the ill. He's sort of beginning to demonstrate what it looks like when the Son of God pulls back the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. Things like disease, things like hunger, things like paralysis. The Son of God walks through and He is able to make those sad things come untrue. 
and people are beginning to wonder, if he can alleviate those things, what else might he be able to do? The problem is, Jesus is almost never interested in healing everybody he encounters or feeding everybody he encounters or resolving every temporal issue he encounters. He's trying to show that he is more than enough. Now, he's apparently weary from all of this ministry, and so he's going to retreat to a sparsely populated area in the hill country to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It says in verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, we're not told exactly where this happens, but there are some other spatial markers that John will give us a little bit later on. Uh, For instance, we know that Peter and Andrew and Philip are from a little village called Bethsaida, which has only been discovered archaeologically within the last couple years. It is to the east of the Jordan River on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's in the bottom low hills of what today we would call the Golan Heights. Very desolate, very sparse, not populated back then, not populated now. So Jesus goes up into this desolate, sparse area to just sort of get some R&R, to go with his disciples. He is weary from having been poured out. And John tells us also that the Passover is at hand, the Feast of the Jews. Now this is the second of three Passovers that John's going to tell us about. Again, this is why we are convinced that the earthly ministry of Jesus lasts about three to three and a half years because it spans three Passovers. This is the second Passover. And it's strange that Jesus is up in Galilee. Well, John's not saying that it is the Passover, but that it is near, it is at hand. More than likely, John's telling us that it is the spring. Jesus would have almost certainly gone back down to Jerusalem for the Passover itself. The Passover is near. It's that time of year. John is making a time marker, but more than that, he's making a theological connection. You see, the Passover, yes, was a religious uh, observance, but it was way more than that by then to these people. The Passover was the height of Jewish national pride and identity. It would be like if you took our July 4th and our Pearl Harbor Day and our Veterans Day and our Memorial Day and you put them all together. That's the galvanizing and the polarizing and the forging of us as a nation state. This is what the Passover has become because you remember, there we were, bound, helpless, hopeless, and hapless in Egypt and God brought us out into a land of prosperity. Except it didn't work because we rebelled and the Assyrians came, and then that didn't work, and we rebelled again, and then the Babylonians came, and then that didn't work, and then the Medes and the Persians came, and then that didn't work, and then the Greeks came, and that didn't work, and then the Romans came. But soon again, God's going to come and give us our plenty and our prosperity. God will deliver us. We sure want our peace, our plenty, and our prosperity back. And if, and if God's in it, that's great, but what we really want is our comfort and our convenience. Does that sound familiar at all, or am I just talking to myself here? I just want to be comfortable and generally left alone. And if God's a part of it, man, that's great. But really, I just need what I need now. So Passover every year comes around, and that's what these people are hoping for. But the fact that it's Passover is theologically crucial to understanding exactly what John is talking about. John the Baptist has already announced Jesus multiple times as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's really Passover. So how is that theological proclamation going to be demonstrated on a remote northern Galilean hillside to a crowd of people with completely different expectations? 
We're going to see people who misunderstand the enormity of their need in crisis and who are willing to settle for less than the ultimate solution. That's the setting. Now then, verses 5 through 9, we'll pick up here. Verses 5 through 9 is the situation. We've gotten the setting established. Verses 5 through 9, we're going to hear the situation. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus looks up and he sees that all of these people are coming. He looks to Philip. We've been told in chapter 1, verse 44, that Philip is from the village of Bethsaida, as were Andrew and Peter. And he asks them, where can they buy food so that these people can eat? But surely Jesus is not just interested in giving these people a snack. What's going on at the deeper level? Yes, Jesus is compassionate. Remember, he doesn't heal everyone. He's rarely interested in merely resolving temporal matters. Remember, this is an agrarian, agricultural society. Food is a matter of life and death to these people. Now, we really candidly, we have a hard time really understanding and internalizing this because food for us is really a matter of convenience and preference. Where do we want to go and eat lunch today? It's generally available at all times and in many forms all over the city, regardless of what else is going on in the world. If we experience a drought or a famine, candidly, most of us don't even realize it when it comes to our food. But for these people, they rely daily on sustenance to simply live each day. And so Jesus asks Philip, how will these people be fed so that they can live? A part of me has a real sensitivity to Philip. I mean, don't you just hate being asked questions that you know you don't know the answer to and that the guy who's asking you knows the answer to and you're going to feel stupid? I hate that. Like, what is the square root of a moose? Like, I don't don't know. Why don't you tell me? Uh, That guy happens to know, and so then I get to feel stupid and he gets to feel smart. I kind of feel for Philip here. And John tells us, yeah, Jesus already knows. He already has in mind what he's going to do. Jesus knows what's going to do, and he's testing Philip to see if Philip's going to respond by faith and trust Jesus as God, or if he's going to revert to his default material thinking and try to resolve the matter in his own capacity and focus on what he does not have. So Philip answers him. Um, Philip answers in verse 7. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip says, listen, even if we had eight months' worth of money, I I, I don't know what your wage, what your salary is over eight months, but that would be quite a lot. But he said, even if we have that and we don't, it wouldn't be enough. Even if we had eight months' worth of money, the nearby village of Bethsaida wouldn't have that much in their coffers to feed all these people, to give them even a small bite But Jesus, of course, is making a bigger point. There is nothing that we can do to amass the resources necessary to actually sustain life for our species. It actually is impossible. And so another disciple named Andrew, also from Bethsaida, he comes up and he says that he has a little bit of food. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Whereas Philip focused on what he didn't have Andrew focused on what he did have, neither of which were significant. Now, John tells us that there is a boy that has some loaves and fishes. The word is piderion. It might mean boy, but in that 
most typical usage, that word either means a young man or a young male slave. So you might have in mind from your third grade flannel gram course that it's a little seven-year-old. It might have been, but more than likely, it's probably a young male slave that says, I have this in a napkin, and Andrew finds him and says, this is the very best that we can produce. Now, John is the only gospel writer that tells us that these loaves are made of barley. None of the other synoptic gospel writers tell us that. Barley is the food of the poor. Here's what you do to make a barley loaf. You get a bunch of barley, you kind of moisten it, you clump it together, you let it sit, and then you eat it. It's like eating a granola bar that you put in dirt for an hour and a half. That's kind of what a barley loaf is. It's disgusting. It's the food of the poor. It's not a nice golden Belgian waffle. It's not a big French baguette. It's like a granola bar that was run through your fan belt, okay? It's nasty. And he's got five of them. Oh, but good news, he's also got two fish. Mm, well, two fish. These are little pickled sardines that you would actually take your finger and you would spread across that granola bar. Mmm, church picnic time. Just to give it a little taste of brine and salt because the granola is actually disgusting. Now, what's going on here? Why does John mention that this is a barley loaf? Well, because John's always going to try to tell us throughout his gospel that Jesus is the greater everything the old testament points to jesus is the greater in the book of second kings chapter four there's a very quick brief story of the prophet elisha and elisha is tasked with feeding 100 men and he has with him 20 barley loaves and elisha's Piderion, his young male servant, says, how am I supposed to feed all of these people, these hundred people, with these 20 loaves? It's not going to work. And Elisha does a miraculous sign through the power of God, and they are fed. John is clearly making a connection that there is one who is greater than Elisha, who has come, who feeds far more people with far less, do you see? All the wonders we saw in the Old Testament, Jesus is more than enough. That's the situation. Well, we go to verses 10 through 13. Now we have our third point in our outline. We've had the setting. We've had the situation. Now we're going to see in verses 10 to 13 the solution. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And I love this, this just little narrative detail. Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Why does John mention that there happens to be some vegetation? The Gospel of Mark actually nuances it and says, now there was much green grass. John's already told us that it's the time of the Passover, so we know it's March or April. It's spring, so the, green, the grass is green and lush. It has not been burned out and baked out yet. This is an intentional connective to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and he causes his sheep to sit down in pastures of green grass. This is what the good shepherd is doing. And John's trying to draw our hearts and our minds to understand this Jesus is so much more than. He is more than enough. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, John is very careful to tell us that the men, it's a masculine term, the men sat down and there are 5,000 of them. This was not a man cave. They would have brought their wives and families as well. So there are as many as 15 to 20,000.
thousand people sitting in this sort of natural theater that is the low hills of the Golan Heights on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Between 15 and 20 thousand people gathered up there. I want you to imagine the scene. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus has them sit very orderly in groups of 50 and 100. So there must have been building up all this anticipation. What's going to happen? What's he going to do? He's seated us down. It's ordered. Something incredible is about to happen. Jesus gives thanks for the food. Verse 11, he took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus simply does a typical Jewish prayer thanking for food. As much as I would love to tie what Jesus does here to communion, to the Eucharist, I would love to see that connection. It's simply not what Jesus is doing here, not what John is describing. A typical Jewish man, when he eats bread, simply says this, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. John's not making a connection yet to communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist. John is drawing attention to the abundance and the plenty of Jesus' provision. And the sense of this telling is that the 12 disciples, they keep going back to Jesus. <laughs> they keep going to this group of 50 and they've got their, their cloaks perhaps pulled up and Jesus just loads them up. We're not told how this miracle happens, that he crosses his arms, that he wiggles his nose. That he, no. Jesus just keeps loading their garments filling the disciples with sustenance. And they go back to this group and they just unload these barley loaves and fish. And they go back to Jesus and they keep getting more and it just keeps multiplying. The people are given as much as they wanted. They are overfilled. Not just that each person gets a small bite, which is all that Philip could even imagine. There is more than enough. In fact, there is so much left over from the original supply that was not nearly enough that we're told that According to Jewish practice, they gather up all the leftovers. Because again, food is a matter of life and death. And all four gospel writers make mention of the fact that there are 12 baskets left over. A clear and compelling reference to the fact that the disciples will have what they need when they need it supplied by God to minister to the people that they encounter. It's a great model for ministry. I don't have anything, and that's not the point. But there is one who is more than enough. Disciples of Jesus continue to go back to Jesus in devotion and say, there is need. Will you just fill my cloak so that I can distribute that which is already yours? That's the solution. Well, verse 14, very quickly, our next point in the outline, we move to verses 14 and 15, the supposition. We've had the setting, we've had the situation, we've had the solution. Now we've got the supposition. How will the people respond verse 14 when the people saw the sign that he had done they said this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world the fact that this is a miraculous occurrence is not lost on these people they realize and they recognize that something supernatural has happened to feed all of them from essentially nothing such that there is an abundance of leftovers, that there is more than enough. And so their supposition is that what Moses promised way back in Deuteronomy 18.15 has happened. 1,500 years ago, they're still waiting for Moses' promise to be fulfilled. 1,500 years ago, Moses had gathered the people in the wilderness on a hillside, and as the prophet of God, he called down manna and fed them for the day. 
And he said, there will come one after me who is greater than me. You must listen to him. And the people say, surely this is it. What's fascinating in the text is that neither Jesus nor John rebukes them. Neither Jesus nor John says, but that's an error. It's an astonishing claim. Jesus is in fact the greater Moses. He is in fact the prophet, but they miss the point. They settled for less than. All they wanted was daily bread that just fell day by day and get out of my life. They misunderstand completely. This is during the season of national fervor, and so these people have been experiencing something that hasn't happened for 1,500 years. This is the time of year when our hero is supposed to emerge. This is the one. If he can feed all of us, he is going to crush the armies of Rome. They could just see this Jesus with his foot on the neck of the Roman eagle. But they totally misunderstood. Jesus is not going to drown the Roman army the way the Egyptian army drowned. Jesus is he's actually going to die for the Roman army. Every time you see a Roman centurion mentioned in Scripture, always favorably described. So, Jesus, either by supernatural uh, knowledge or simply by his powers of observation, realizes that they are about to rush him by force and try to make him their king. But Jesus will not have it. His program will not be rushed. He will not have his crown before he goes to the cross. See, they just wanted victory over hunger. They wanted victory over Rome. But his victory will be over sin and death and true bondage. See, Jesus has not come to solve their problems nor to better their lives. He has come to give them life itself. He has come to give them himself. So we move to the final point of the outline, verse 16 to 21, the sovereignty the sovereignty. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It's dark right at sunset, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The winds would come over the Mediterranean, over the hills, and they would whip down to the Sea of Galilee, which is six, 600 feet below sea level, and the winds would blow west to east. So if you're trying to row back to the west, it's very, very difficult. So they're about three and a half miles into the water and they're going nowhere fast. And they're exhausted. The book of Mark tells us that it's at the fourth watch. This is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. And these guys are exhausted. They rode about three miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Because, you know, Moses was great and all. He did some pretty incredible things. But walk across water, that's next level stuff right there. That's a tip off. This guy's kind of special. And so they're freaked out. Well, he says to them, it is I. Now, as much as I would love for this to be a declaration of divinity, ego eimi in Greek, it's not. He's simply identifying himself. Do not be afraid. It's almost like Jesus understands. Hey, look, I know you're disappointed, disciples. Even you missed it. I just fed... 20,000 people with a granola bar and a sardine. Ew. And they wanted me to be king. And, and truth be told, you would probably want me to be king too. But make no mistake, I am the sovereign king. Just way more than you expected. 
not here just to do parlor tricks and fill people's bellies. I'm here to conquer the ultimate foe that is sin and death. Oh, you want a king? I am a king. Just not exactly what you thought. Verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We get no more explanation for that. There's no other mention in the gospel of John about how suddenly were there three and a half miles in the center of the lake and all of a sudden they're just at Capernaum immediately. What's going on? Well, again, I think John is trying to connect our Old Testament scripture knowledge as good little Jewish readers to an Old Testament passage. Psalm 107 verse 30 says this, Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. I think that's what happens. John doesn't give us any more detail. Just Jesus is the one that God does these things through. Now, for the rest of chapter 6, we're going to spend two more Sundays because Jesus himself is going to take the rest of chapter 6 all the way through verse 71, explaining why he is the bread of life and why it is such a significant event in John's gospel. The point of this passage, I would contend, is that Jesus is more than enough. So I want to just look at three very quick ways, three principles. There could be a lot of others, but how I this passage shows us that Jesus is more than enough for each and every one of us and to help us grow in our devotion. First principle goes like this. Jesus gives life because he is life. He does not simply offer improvement. He gives life because Jesus himself is life. It's one of the primary lessons. He's not here to improve our lives. He comes to offer us his life. Just about every person you and I will ever meet wants a good life, or at least a good life according to some preconceived notion, whether it's money, wealth, happiness, health, relationships, family, etc., but when we're introduced to Jesus, we think, whoa, whoa, hold on a second there. That's a bit wilder. That's a, a lot less predictable. Following him might cost me some of these things that I value. And that's right. And it might. But this text is telling us that this Jesus, this one who can do these things, man, he is worth it. Listen, virtually none of us make it through life accomplishing the vision that we had when we were seventh graders sitting in our bedrooms. One day I'm going to this, one day I'm going to do this, one day I'm going to do this. I promise you, when I was in junior high, I never for a million years thought I was going to spend two weeks of my life with a Toyota Prius parked up my sinus. Never had that vision. Never thought that was going to happen. But surprise, surprise, life happens. Life never goes the way all of us envision it from the very beginning. It pummels us, all of us. It simply throws us too many curves and detours. But... A person who is committed to go with Jesus wherever he goes and do whatever he does will always have life abundant despite the circumstances or accessories because they will have Jesus himself and he is the essence of life itself. Second point, for me to eat, something must die. Did you ever think about that? For me to eat, something must die. Jesus is going to talk about this a lot in the weeks to come when we talk, tackle the remainder of John chapter 6. But this passage is a sobering reminder for what will ultimately occur at the cross. This Jesus, who is more than enough, has to give his life away in order that I might take it up. In an agricultural society, every single thing that you eat was a result of some kind of death, whether it was some sort of meat some sort of animal, or even grain and plant life, something has to die in order for us to eat so that we can live. 
And Jesus is saying, listen, I have come to be the bread of life. And for us to have access to him, he must die. And he says he is willing to do so. The Father is worth it, and he's going to say later on that even we are worth it because Jesus is more than enough. But the reason that he is enough is that the Son of Man is also the Son of God, and he is willing to die for the sake of the undeserving. Third point. Jesus does not meet our expectations. Jesus is our expectation. The people on the hillside near Bethsaida at Passover wanted a national hero, someone who would lead them to glory, to lead them to national pride, but that wasn't good enough. Their expectation was too low. Instead, this Jesus is one who can walk on water and free his people not from invading armies. In fact, he can even free the invading armies from their own sin and death, separation from God and their eternal destination of misery but he can also give life abundant that starts full on from the moment that we trust him and the signs and the wonders that jesus does are largely prototypical of what our lives will be one day fully led by the holy spirit and utterly free from sin yes Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, but he's also the first fruit from among the dead, a demonstration of what our lives will be like one day. 1 John 3, 2 says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When you look at the life of Jesus, it is supposed to call to you, oh man, that's the kind of life I wish I could live. That's the kind of guy I wish I could be. And by grace, one day you will be fully, finally removed from sin, totally, utterly dependent on his Holy Spirit, just like the earthly life of Jesus. Because what Jesus is after is him living his life as if he were you. Because Jesus is more than enough. I'll tell you candidly and transparently, I've had a lot of time these last couple of weeks to just sit still and be introspective. A number of times I would look at my wife Susan and say, is, is this really happening or am I going to wake up from this? I, I don't think I can take any more. I, I don't think I can handle it. She'd say, it, it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And so I had all of those mind-wandering paths, if I'm being transparent. And finally, it came down to that horrible game of what if. Well, what if, what if, what if? Is it enough? Is it enough? And by God's grace, I got to spend some time in this passage. And that's when it struck me, oh my God. He really is enough, but not just that. He really is more than enough, despite all of the circumstance, despite all of the distraction, despite all the madness, despite all the disappointment, all of the discomfort. He really and truly is more than enough. And I got to experience in the midst of being set aside, humbly, rather embarrassed, candidly, an increase in my devotion. Now, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but I would wish on everyone an opportunity to hear this passage wash over and have your increase in devotion because Jesus is more than enough. Now we get to sort of celebrate and commemorate the significance of who this Jesus is and what he has done by taking communion together this morning. So I'm going to ask those who are going to serve if you would please come on forward. We're going to move towards the Lord's Supper, towards the Eucharist, to the Lord's table. And I want to encourage you to uh, do some serious inventory in your own life. Is Jesus truly, in the, in the solitude and the silence of your own heart and mind, is he truly enough and is he more 
than enough. If not, this is the opportunity. What a great thing that we have these tiny little nutrient-free wafers and these little tiny cups of Welch's to remind us of the enormity of the provision and the abundance that God has given in Christ. He's given us His Spirit, His Word, and His people. And so if there's anything between you and your brother or sister, I encourage you now to to look to Jesus and to throw that at the cross and be done with it. If there's anything that stands between you and the Lord, this is the time when you hurl that at the cross and ask it to be removed. The answer is already yes. If you're not a believer this morning and you're still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, then I'm going to encourage you and invite you to simply let the elements pass. Those who receive the grace of God will also hand off the grace of God. Just let the elements pass. No one's going to make a big deal about that. If you'll hold the elements to the end, we'll take them together and we'll commemorate the finished work of our King. Our Father, we do thank you for who you are for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And if there's one here who does not know you, pray God that you will move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus. They will trust. They'll have their expectations recalibrated, reset to those of your son Jesus. For the rest of us, Father, would you increase by grace our devotion that we would be men and women who resemble and reflect the image of your son Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time and pray that you would use it continually for your purpose. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us again this morning. Let me ask you to stand for word of benediction and we will be dismissed. We'll make way for our second hour. Please don't forget to join us for our picnic after the second service. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May you reflect. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.